Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, please open up to John chapter uh, 8. We're going to keep on uh, plowing ahead uh, in our study of John's Gospel. Uh, as uh, you're turning there, uh, there is a, a book uh, by Ben Sass. He is a, a senator uh, from Nebraska. And the, the book is called The Vanishing American Adult. Uh, and in that book, he, he writes about a time when his family returned home from vacation uh, and they found out that their air conditioner uh, was not uh, working. Uh, and uh, Senator Sass has uh, two teenage uh, daughters uh, and uh, they did not respond well uh, to the air conditioning not working. Uh, he says, it, you know, it took place in the month of August when the when their AC was out, and usually that would be a really bad thing, but he said they were having very mild weather for that time of year. It was just in the high 70s, but uh, his two daughters came into uh, he and his wife's room in the middle of the night, and they said, we can't sleep in our room anymore. It's 72 degrees, and it won't get any cooler, uh, and uh, they, they just they said, we can't, we can't do it. Uh, and uh, the senator said he he and his wife melissa when that when their daughters are, are there in the middle of the night saying that to them that they immediately felt a sense of failure and uh, how they have raised their their kids because uh they had raised their kids in a way that uh their their girls felt that air conditioning was a need rather than a luxury Right? And I'm sure there are some uh, dads here in the room uh, that have the, the thermostat in an iron grip, right? Uh, nobody turns on the thermostat. That costs money. Uh, and, uh, and some of you are like, yeah, I'm that dad. Uh, but, but just the, the reality, and it's easy for our surroundings and our possessions to influence our hearts and our minds uh, and to, to train us incorrectly concerning what we really need uh, versus what we would prefer to have. Uh, and there are times when if our uh, uh, affections are not properly in, in line, that we end up feeling like the world is ending when it's really not. Right? Having your room be 72 degrees, uh, that, that's not a world-ending issue. And again, most people in the world, that, that's, that's far cooler uh, than they could uh, ever get their home to be. And so uh, it's, it's true that uh, we can develop these false notions of reality. But it's also very easy for us to develop uh, notions in, in the other direction. So it's easy to say uh, that the world is ending when it's really not. Uh, and it's also very easy uh, to say that everything is fine when it's really not. Uh, and that's what uh, the false prophets uh, in the Old Testament did uh, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. God condemns uh, the false prophets uh, for saying everything is fine when the people were actually in rebellion against God. Ezekiel 13, verse 10 says this, speaking of these false prophets, it's precisely because they have misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Uh, that the prophets were not speaking uh, truly. They were not speaking accurately. Uh, they were saying everything's fine when it's really not. Uh, and uh, the passage that we're going to study th this morning in the Gospel of John, 
Jesus is going to do a, a little bit of that, uh, a little bit of a, a dose of reality uh, to uh, the people there in the temple, uh, to the religious leaders and also to uh, all of the, the, the common Jews who were surrounding and listening in to this discussion uh, between Jesus and the religious leaders. And as we have been studying our way through uh, John chapter 7 and 8, remember this is all one big section, a a series of events uh, that are centered upon uh, the Feast of Booths. Uh, And uh, back in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, we cover the days uh, leading up to the feast uh, where Jesus' brothers were uh, giving him counsel of whether or not he should uh, go up and use this as a big publicity uh, tour. In verses 11 to 13 in chapter 7, as we saw, were were the first few days of the feast where Jesus had not uh, revealed himself uh, yet. uh, And everyone was speculating about who he was. Uh, Was he a good man? Was he from God? Was he the Messiah? Uh, They they couldn't uh, decide. Then in verse 14 through verse 36 in John 7, covers the the middle of the feast uh, where Jesus was teaching in the temple and then he got into a, a debate Uh, with the the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And then beginning in verse 37 uh, in chapter 7, and then leading all the way up to uh, the end of chapter 8, is the final day of the feast, excepting uh, chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11, which we talked about uh, the story of the woman caught in adultery. And this latter part of uh, John chapter 7 focuses on the invitation of, of Jesus. Uh, where he says, all who thirst, come to me, uh, and you will never be thirsty again. And then chapter 8 is going to focus upon the the authority and origin of Jesus. As we saw last week, uh, Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, and uh, the Pharisee says, no, no, you can't claim that. Your testimony isn't valid. Uh, But but Jesus uh, argued against that, and he demonstrated that his testimony about himself is authoritative because he's not alone. Uh, that he, what he says is authenticated uh, and verified by God the Father. God the Father is testifying along with God the Son uh, about uh, his deity and who he is. Uh, and then Jesus also indicted the Pharisees uh, at the end of a passage last week, verse 19, when they said, Where is your father? And Jesus says, You ni- know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And, and that was a very severe indictment against them. He says, you, you think you know God, but you really don't. Because they have refused to accept and believe in Christ as his son, the one he has sent. But we're going we're gonna to continue our study in verses 21 to 24 uh, this morning. And as we are going to read these verses, what, what we're going to see is uh, Jesus is going to speak to uh, the religious leaders and to all of those who are hearing. And, and he's going to say that they are on a certain trajectory. That this is where they are headed. And if they continue on this trajectory, there is a, a culminating destination. Uh, and uh, like all trips, you eventually get where you're going. Right? Uh, and so what Jesus is going to warn them of is that they need to change their course. That they have wrongly believed that everything is just fine when it's not fine. Uh, they have been proclaiming peace, peace, but there is no peace. So read with me John chapter 8, beginning in verse 21. We're going to read through verse 24. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. 
Where I am going, you cannot come. And so the Jews said, Will he kill himself since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come? And he said to them, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Let's pause and and pray. Father, you are the God of all truth. We pray now that you would lead us and guide us, that you would help us to understand your word at this time. Lord, that your word would be light to our lives, that you would help us to see the world around us clearly, that you would help us to see ourselves clearly, but Father, most importantly, help us to see you clearly. Help us to to rightly assess uh, our own condition, our own situation. Help us to, to hear and receive your word, taking it into our hearts and minds so that we might be renewed and transformed by the power of your spirit. We ask for your blessing and your guidance at this time in Jesus name. Amen. So as we study this passage this morning, we're going to see Jesus giving this warning to the Pharisees. But it's not just for the Pharisees. It is for all of humanity because each and every one of us here and each and every person who has ever lived has sinned and struggled in the exact essential ways that Jesus is going to address here. Uh, The sin that's going to be on display in the Pharisees is the sin that is present within each and every one of our hearts. Uh, And we have to see that and understand that. Uh, And we have to see that there is a desperate urgency to the human condition, to our situation. Uh, And what is it that, that makes our situation desperate? Well, that's what we're going to see in the first part of this passage. We're going to see that desperate urgency, and there's going to be four reasons why our situation is desperate and urgent. But then uh, in the very last portion of verse 24, we're going to see uh, a second item, the only escape from the human condition. Uh, but, But we need to rightly understand our situation so that we respond. Is this something where we are overreacting or is this something that we're we are underreacting? And we want to make sure that we are responding rightly to the situation that we are in. But as we look through uh, verses 21 to to 24, first we're going to see this desperate urgency of the human condition. Uh, And in verse 21, we're going to see the first reason that our condition is urgent. And uh, this reason is that we are condemned by unbelief. If you look again at that verse, he said to them again, I am going away. And you will seek me and you will die in your sin. And where I am going, you cannot come. Uh, And uh, if this seems a a little familiar to you, uh, and it should, Jesus is repeating what he said earlier in John's gospel. If you look back uh, to uh, the the middle of the feast, uh, John chapter 7, verses 33 and 34, Jesus essentially says the exact same thing that he's saying here. Uh, Jesus said, uh, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me and you will seek me and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. 
So Jesus is, uh, is repeating himself and, and emphasizing uh, things. And, and, but his, this occasion, as he repeats himself, uh, his warning is going to be more serious. And, and his indictment is more severe on this occasion because he's saying, uh, where I'm going, you can't come. Uh, that, that there is a, going to be a point in time uh, when, when those who were, were hearing him, and specifically the religious leaders, uh, when they would try and find him, they would look to him for grace uh, and mercy. They would realize their error, probably after they died. Uh, and, and there would be no hope for them at that point. This is pointing to uh, that final judgment where, where it's going to be too late for them to, to look to Christ and accept him as the Messiah, to accept him as the Son of God. He says, you're going to search for me in the future, but at that point in time, you're not going to be able to find me. Indeed, when, when Jesus says here that they will die in their sin, that's uh, quite the indictment. And, and if you notice that, that word sin is, is singular. He doesn't say sins here. He's going to say that a little bit later, verse 24. But he has sin singular here, and he's doing that specifically with one sin in mind. He says they are going to die in their sin because he's thinking of the sin of unbelief. That, that is ultimately the sin that will condemn anyone. And for the Pharisees, it is more than just unbelief. Uh, a better description is that they would refuse to believe. Back in John chapter 5, another debate between Jesus and the religious leaders. Uh, in verse, verses 39 and 40, Jesus said this, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, the Pharisees had been witnesses uh, to uh, the ministry of Jesus. Uh, they had uh, seen what he, his character was. They had seen his, his conduct. They had seen him perform miracles. They had seen the people he had performed miracles upon. Uh, they had heard him teach. They had seen uh, the wisdom of all that he taught. And yet they still rejected it. They're, they're still trying to dismiss him on technicalities. Your testimony doesn't count. And this is a clear rejection of Jesus, and that is the ultimate sin. Now, last month we were reading through the book of Exodus uh, together as a church. Uh, and over and over again in Exodus, there, there was a phrase uh, that was uh, used to describe uh, Israel. Uh, Moses used it. Uh, God used it, I think, eight times in Exodus where it says that Israel was a stiff-necked people. What does that mean? Well, uh, in, in farming uh, times in, in ancient Israel, uh, a plow would be pulled uh, by two oxen uh, paired up together on a yoke. Uh, and so the, the farmer would walk alongside them, one hand uh, on uh, the, the oxen yoke, leading and guiding them. And then he would have an ox goad uh, in his other hand, a uh, long uh, wooden uh, uh, piece, uh, and it would have an iron spike uh, at the end of it, uh, and he would, uh, when the oxen were, were going a little bit too slow, he would kind of hit uh, behind them and hit their leg, and that would encourage them uh, to speed up. Uh, when they were going off course, uh, he would kind of tap them on the, the neck with it uh, and, and try and get them back the direction that they were supposed to go. 
Uh, and ultimately, uh, if an animal refused to listen to that ox goat and would refuse to be directed, uh, that animal was said to be uh, stiff-necked or to have a hard neck. And what we see here is, is that it is the Pharisees. Uh, and it's easy to say, oh, well, that's just them. But again, this is the default position of all of us. Uh, we are naturally stiff-necked people. Uh, we are stubborn. We don't like correction, right? Uh, students, how, how do you respond when your parents uh, are going to uh, speak some truth into your life, right? Do you enjoy that moment, right? Uh, and you just think about any other interaction uh, in a human level. Uh, we don't like to necessarily hear correction from our spouse or from our boss or from a, a fellow co-worker or from our neighbor, anything. We, we don't like that, right? Uh, we are all naturally stiff-necked. And our unbelief also stiffens our neck against God. It influences our hearts and our minds. Even to the extent where you can be an eyewitness to all of the miracles and all of the teachings of Jesus and still reject Him. And we should not think that we are not capable of such unbelief and hard-heartedness. If you you turn over with me to, to the book of Hebrews... What we see there uh, is that even as believers, uh, it is possible for our heart to be hardened. For us to be led astray. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. says, But take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And he's, spe- he's speaking to Christians. He says, don't let this happen. Well, how would that happen? How is it that we could have an evil, unbelieving heart? And the rest of the verse says, leading you to fall away from the living God. Well, the next verse tells us how that can happen. It says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And two things there that have a hardening effect upon our hearts, whether we are a believer or an unbeliever. Sin and unbelief. If we walk in either of those, it's going to put calluses upon our heart. uh, And it's going to lead us astray from walking with God. And so it is possible to be so deceived by sin, so calloused in our hearts, that we even believe that we are righteous when we are really not. Which leads us to uh, the second reason our condition is desperate. If you go back to to John chapter 8. You look in verse 22. So, verse 21, that uh, we are condemned by unbelief. Verse 22, we are blinded by self-righteousness. Verse 22, we see the response of the Pharisees. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, this is interesting. Because look back at verse 21. And Jesus makes several statements, right? And one of them is like the elephant in the room. The really big statement in verse 21 is that he says, you're going to die in your sin. Now, I would like to think if I was there, I would say, "Ooh, tell me more about that. Can we can we dive into that and explain to me like because that sounds dangerous and bad for me. Let's talk to me, Jesus. I, I would like to think I would do that, but I probably wouldn't. But but notice we would probably do exactly what the Pharisees do. They completely ignore the indictment against them. And what do they focus upon? The the little detail. 
Well, Jesus, where are you going to go? And again, the same way that Jesus is repeating something that he said earlier in John chapter 7, the Pharisees are doing something very similar. If you look back at John chapter 7, verse 35. This is immediately after Jesus said, where you, you will uh, seek me and not be able to find me. Where I, come, where I go, you cannot come. Verse 35, the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? So they had this, uh, you know, kind of mocking statement of, you know, where is he going to run and escape from us? Is he going to he's going to have to uh, leave uh, Jerusalem uh, and Israel and go to the far reaches of the Roman Empire and teach the Gentiles? Uh, And uh, here they're mocking. Where is he going to go? Is he going to commit suicide? Is he going to kill himself? And then we can't follow him there. And uh, again, John is loaded with irony. Uh, The first statement that they made back in John chapter 7 is true because what was Jesus' exact plan? He's going to die and uh, his apostles are going to go forth to the far reaches of the empire uh, and they're going to teach the Gentiles. They're going to proclaim the gospel, the good news about Jesus to the whole world. And what's ironic here, when the the Jews are, are mocking and saying, well, are you going to kill yourself? Uh, and in, in the Jewish mind, suicide was the, the, the worst of sins. Uh, and that those who, who killed themselves would, would be banished to the, the darkest part of Hades. So you're going to kill yourself and, and we won't be able to go there. But the, but the irony is Jesus is not going to kill himself. They're going to kill him. And they're not going to be able to go where he's going because when they kill him, he's not going to Hades. He's going to heaven. He's going to be with the one who sent him, God the Father. There's irony upon irony in this. And what we really see by their complete ignoring of the the real matter at hand, Jesus says, you are going to die in your sin. And they immediately shift, well, where are you going to go? They ignore the true matter. And, and in ignoring that, what do they think about what Jesus just said? They're dismissing it offhand. They don't even need to, to think about the possibility that they're going to die in their sin. They just dismiss it. That is self-righteousness. That we have no need to even examine ourselves. We know where we stand. They are spiritually blind. And one of the many symptoms of spiritual blindness is a profound self-righteousness. And when you feel that you have no need to even examine your own life, that's self-righteousness. You feel you are morally good, above reproach. Self-righteous is so dangerous because a self-righteous sinner uh, is like a, a man driving a car that, that is just completely falling apart. And yet he protests that, that nothing is wrong. Maybe you're there with him in the passenger seat and you, you see the check engine light come on. right? And it, initially it's flashing and then it's like a solid state. And if it had an alarm that, to go with it, then the alarm would be going off as well. Uh, the car would be sputtering and choking. Now, you would maybe see parts of the engine falling off and, and drifting behind you in the road. If you look behind you, you would see sparks flying up uh, be, from behind the car because the bumpers are falling off and all of these, all of these things. And then you look at the driver. You're like, what are we going to do? And he's like, what, what's wrong? There's nothing wrong here. That, that's what self-righteousness is like. 
It's a refusal to acknowledge reality. Refusal to examine self. And this self-righteousness is a, a blindness to our true condition. J.C. Ryle, a pastor from the 19th century, says, Oh, beware of self-righteousness. His open sin kills thousands of souls, but self-righteousness kills tens of thousands. Another pastor, Robert Murray Machane, says, Self-righteousness is the largest idol of the human heart. The idol which man loves most and God hates most. We, we have to be aware of this danger of self-righteousness, this refusal to, to look at our lives and to examine it, not just according to our own opinions, but we've said over and over again, what is the standard? What is the, the lens, the measuring stick by which we must evaluate all of life, including our own hearts? God's Word. And the Pharisees refused to do that, even as we saw uh, in the last discussion. Jesus pointed to the law. He said, hey, by your own standard, you should accept my testimony. Because he said, I testify and the Father testifies with me. There's two witnesses, and your law says, if any two witnesses agree, you must accept their testimony. But they rejected that. And they refused to examine their hearts and their minds. They are prideful, self-righteous, and even as we saw... Now, as we're reading through First Peter this month, Peter quotes Proverbs, right? Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. So the pride of our hearts, which springs up naturally, and at all times is working, right? Even as you think like, oh, I'm I'm being pretty good about dealing with my pride. Well, well that's a prideful statement. Uh, right there, and so you're immediately failing. Uh, so it's, it, pride is something that we never truly conquer, and that self-righteousness const- has to constantly be popped. It's a balloon that is ever being inflated within our hearts, and we have to be there with the needle to pop it. Say, nope, I have to address that. I have to take those thoughts captive biblically. Because if we don't, our self-righteousness will blind us. That is why our condition is so urgent. Because we are condemned by unbelief. Secondly, we are blinded by self-righteousness. And then thirdly, verse 23, we are characterized by worldliness. In that verse, Jesus says, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And so this is, this is Jesus explaining their self-righteousness, explaining their, their pride and their rejection of Him. Why do they reject Him? Well, because they are earthly and He is heavenly. They, they don't understand spiritual truths. They, they reject them because they belong to this earth. He gives these, these two contrasting statements that, that are going to be uh, throwing together sin and darkness, heaven uh, and earth. Uh, in uh, the heavenly realm with the earthly realm. Again, the natural state of humanity, why our situation is so desperate is that we are characterized by worldliness. We belong to this world. And we, uh, because we belong to this world and we are constantly in this world, we are constantly becoming more and more like this world. That's our natural trajectory. I've said many times in John's Gospel, the world is characterized by darkness. 
Uh, And if we are uh, here in this present world, we are constantly being bombarded and influenced in ways that we don't even see by the darkness. We we become like those whom we spend time with. 1 Corinthians 15.33 Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Why does it begin with do not be deceived? Because what do we like to think? I can dabble with this. I can hang with this crowd and not be influenced. And God says, well, don't be deceived. You're, you're not the exception to the rule here. You are going to become like those you are uh, around most. Proverbs 22, verses 23 and 24 say something similar. It says, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and become like him. Don't hang out with an angry man because what are you going to end up becoming like? Just like him. Even, even more so than that, we'll, we'll go a, a, a level deeper. Turn with me over to Psalm 115. If you mark your Bibles, this is a, a passage to, to mark. This is a passage to meditate and reflect on. So, yes, on the one hand, we become like the people that we are spending time with and hanging with. So if we're hanging out in this world, we're naturally going to become more and more like this world. But let's take it uh, one layer deeper, and I'll say this. We become like what we worship. If you look at Psalm 115, beginning in verse 4, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. This is a description of idols. right? Idols that are crafted by human hands. Uh, and these idols are deaf, mute. They, they can't move. Right? But then, verse 8, what does it say? Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. And if idols are mute and dumb and, and cannot move, what does our condition become if we place our trust in those idols, if we make idols? Ezekiel 14 condemns uh, the elders of Israel because they have set up idols for themselves in their own hearts. We have to be aware of this. Again, we, we are characterized by worldliness. And while we are here on this earth, uh, we are constantly going to be influenced by uh, this reality. But, but if you look there in Psalm 115, what does the very next verse command Israel to do? Who are they to trust? Who are they to look to? The Lord our God, Yahweh. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Can you see the importance of our worship, right? We become like what we worship. If we worship the world and the things in this world, we're going to become exactly like that. But if we worship God, what are we going to become like? God. If we worship and follow Jesus, we will find ourselves becoming more and more like Him. That's what we are called to. But our natural default position is that we are characterized by worldliness. We are characterized by belonging to this world rather than heaven. That's what makes our situation desperate. But then all of this 
All this culminates in, in a fourth and, and final reason that we are in a desperate situation, uh, the natural human condition. We're condemned by unbelief. We are... Oh, I forgot my points. That's what happens when I go off my notes. We are characterized by worldliness. Uh, and we are blind by self-righteousness. And then fourthly, we are encumbered by guilt. This is in the first part of verse 24... Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. I told you that you would die in your sins. So building off the the logic of the the previous verse here, Jesus is now making a a pronouncement. And the implications of being characterized by the world, and in the Greek, uh, the verse begins with therefore. There's a logical connection uh, from what is stated previously to what is stated here. And the ESV doesn't have it, but it's there. Therefore, I said to you, you would die in your sins. But because we are earthly, we are going to die in our sins. That is the emphasis. And you notice here that sins is plural. This is to make a distinction between what is said in verse 21. So verse 21, the sin Jesus had in mind was the sin of unbelief. Here there is a plurality of sins. This is the weight of our guilt. We have all sinned in all that, that sin guilt, that curse of breaking God's law weighs upon us. That is the idea here. And we are going to die as a result. We are going to die in the midst of our sin. Now, back when I was in high school and college, we, we would uh, lift weights, uh, and the, the worst of all weightlifting exercises is squats, leg day. Uh, and, and we would, you know, by the force of our coaching staff, uh, we would have to, to load up the weights, uh, and uh, it would be on this rack, and you would, you would step down underneath the weight and put it on your shoulders. Uh, and you'd have your, your knees bent, and you would uh, stand up and take it off the rack, and you'd take a couple steps back. And then you would have to, to bend your knees down and then bring it back up. Uh, and there would be times where uh, whoever was, was there lifting, that you, under the, the weight of that burden, your legs would collapse. Either you were, you were too tired from doing so many reps uh, or the weight was just too much. And it was always uh, startling when that would happen because... Uh, knees would buckle and, and the weight would be would come down and that's why you have to make sure you're on the squat rack uh, so you don't get crushed uh, and, and the, the rack would would catch you uh, but but that's the reality of when uh, we have this burden of sin and we can't lift it we can't even get it off of the rack let alone come in and, and lift it and what Jesus is saying here is we are going to be crushed by that guilt. That guilt weighs upon all of us because of our natural state of unbelief, self-righteousness, worldliness. All those compound together to form this soul-crushing guilt that we can't get out from underneath. And sin promises so much, but it delivers so little. And so we are encumbered and hindered by this guilt. And this truth that is proclaimed here by Jesus. The sin will be the death of you. That you will die in your sin. And if your, your actual sin does not kill you, 
the guilt that you bear because of your sin will lead to judgment before a holy God. That's what we see in this passage. Our desperate condition that we all face, this is the human condition. And, and Jesus promises that we will die in this condition. But I'm very, very thankful that Jesus doesn't end right here. I am so thankful that there is a second part to verse 24. Because Jesus doesn't just emphasize, you have no hope, this is your desperate condition, and you're just stuck there. He gives an escape clause in the second part of verse 24. The only escape from the human condition. He says, unless, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And there is the exception to the human condition. There is our escape. It is a singular exception. Uh, a singular escape. It, there's not uh, one of many different ways. Uh, there is only one way to escape from this human condition, to be changed and transformed in all of those ways that, that we looked at. Uh, and we are transformed and saved by Christ. We are blessed and granted faith by the grace of God. Now we are transformed into uh, giving a, uh, having a new heart which allows us to rightly see uh, our sinfulness. We're no longer self-righteous. We're very uh, accurately self-aware that we are mired in sin. Uh, and then we are no longer to be characterized by worldliness, but what is to characterize us? The character of Christ, heavenly mindedness. Seek the things that are above where Christ is. We are completely transformed. That's what we see. But this statement, unless you believe I am he, you will die in your sin. This is both an assurance of death and doom and an offer of, with hope and life. If you do not believe in Jesus, and your fate is assured, Jesus guarantees it right here. Only one escape clause. You believe in Him, you will live. If you do not, you will perish in your sins. Now, now the words of Christ in this verse are generally not seen on bumper stickers or t-shirts. And I would venture if you went over to Hobby Lobby... Uh, and you walked up and down their aisles, you would probably not find a single piece of artwork created for your home with this passage on it. Right? If you find something, let me know. Send me a picture or an email. Th this is not a popular truth. Right? But it's truth. We have to, to wrestle with it and come to grips with it. Because it, it helps us to rightly understand Again, we can overreact and we can underreact. We don't want to underreact. We need to rightly see and assess the condition that we are in. Jesus says that we are all on a trajectory away from God. That our sin is carrying us towards death. And unless something happens, we will reach that destination at some point. We will die in our sins unless we look to Him in faith. That is the, the message in the heart of the Gospel. Right? If you turn back to John chapter 3, verse 16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And if you look at verse 36 in that same chapter, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So over and over again, we see in John's Gospel, we see in Jesus' own words, this proclamation, this command, this necessity that we must believe in him. But what does that mean? It means a couple of things. Faith in Christ is a trusting in what he has done. And living a perfect life uh, and dying a sacrificial death on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. Faith in Christ implies a dependence upon him for your salvation. And by trusting in Christ, you, you are renouncing all of your own claims to being able to, to handle life to being able to save yourself. It's an acknowledgement, I need what Christ has done. So it's a, it's a trust in what Jesus has done, but it is also a complete trust in who Jesus is. And that's really more the emphasis here in this verse. And I say that because uh, the ESV translates the phrase, uh, unless you believe that I am He... Uh, but what, what's closer in the, in the Greek uh, is Jesus says, unless you believe that I am. Unless you believe that I am. Now, why would Jesus say that? I mean, that that's not a, a normal Greek expression. And, and the Greek words ego eimi, meaning I am, now that, that is actually a, a Greek translation of something in the Old Testament, something that we read last month in Exodus. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where when God was calling Moses to serve him, to be his messenger and his prophet, Moses says, well, if I go to Israel and say that you sent me, I've got to give them a name. Right? What is it you want me to do? Well, what name should I give them? And God says, you give them this name. Exodus three fourteen. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people, I am has sent me to you. The requirement then that Jesus is putting forth here, the only way to be rescued and saved from our sin is that we must believe that He is God. And He is making Himself out to be the God of the Old Testament. He is Yahweh. And there are some people who argue against that. Oh, that's not really what Jesus is meaning here. I say, well, just look at the end of the chapter. John eight fifty eight. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what was the response of the Jews? So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They understood exactly what Jesus was claiming about himself, that he is God. And that's what we must believe. We must believe and place our trust in who Jesus is. We must look to him as our hope. We are called to believe in Him so that we will not die in our sins. 
But we also have to see and believe the urgency and desperation of our situation. Right? We have to see and be convinced that we are condemned by our unbelief, that we are blinded by self-righteousness, that we are characterized by worldliness. And we are encumbered by guilt. And that, that desperate situation is leading us not toward God, but away from Him. And our only hope is to look to Christ and trust in Him. Back in 1977, the first film in the Star Wars universe came out into theaters. The title of that film was uh, A New Hope. And the beginning of that movie is well known to many. You have Princess Leia on a spaceship being boarded by, by Darth Vader. Uh, and she uh, is realizing things are not looking too good for her, so she, she records a video message requesting help from a man named Obi-Wan Kenobi. And she finishes out her message. What? Help me, Obi-Wan. You're my... Okay, now we see who the Star Wars fans are here. <laughs> Security. Uh, I say that jokingly. But we have to see and understand. She understood the desperation of her circumstances. And we don't place our, our faith and trust in a fictional character. We place our faith and trust in the God of the universe. The one who has given us life and breath and everything, who is sustaining all things from the moment of creation till now. We are called to place our trust in Him. To confess and repent of our blindness, our self-righteousness, all of our sin, our unbelief, and we are called to look to Christ he is truly our only hope. Something we must meditate on day in and day out. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong to God. Our only hope is to look to Christ in faith. And if you've placed your faith in Christ this morning, we can give thanks. But because now we clearly see the, se- the desperate situation we have been saved out of. We, we can praise God and thank Him. If, if there are uh, some here this morning who have not placed their faith and trust in Christ, now you know the direction that you're headed. That you know the desperation of your condition. And I would encourage you, cry out to God. Look to Christ in faith. Because unless you believe that He is, you will die in your sin. One of the Puritans said this, faith in Christ then is the receiving of Christ as he is offered in the gospel and so resting upon him alone for life and salvation. And may we all commit our lives to him and may he be our hope in exactly that way. Amen. Let's pray.